0: Hello, and welcome. Uh, I am Matt Rojanski, director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Thank you so much for joining us for today's event, marking the 75th anniversary of George F. Kennan's famous long telegram. And that, of course, was exactly this week, February 22nd, 1946. So we managed to catch the anniversary in the very week uh, that it happened. So uh, today's event is going to give us a unique opportunity to acknowledge uh, Kennan and his legacy uh, he is of course our co-founder and our namesake uh, indirectly perhaps grace will, will say more about that uh but uh his his contributions to the field go well beyond the long telegram of course and yet this document has a very special place uh in the history of his life and career uh, and indeed of the cold war and of the united states um the panel that you're about to see is co-sponsored with the wilson center's history and public policy program uh, you can find the document itself. I encourage you to read it. So many talk about it and talk about its legacy without giving it uh, due attention to the text itself. And it's, it's a wonderful read. Kennan was a, a fluid uh, and brilliant writer, even in the awkward format of a telegram. You have to just keep saying stop, stop at the end of sentences. Um, but I recommend you take a look at it, as well as a blog uh, that you'll find on the digital archive by Frank Castigliola reflecting on the long telegram this week. Um, Also, in commemoration of the uh, event, we have recently released an animated explainer video uh, about the Long Telegram, and uh, that will be on the event page today and all over social media. Also, take a look if you haven't seen it already, uh, and some of you who have will recognize the background behind me from the cover. Uh, You can see 1946, 2021, sort of a perfect balance. It's a book called A Kennan for Our Times, Revisiting America's Greatest 20th Century Diplomat in the 21st Century. We published it in late uh, 2019. Uh, It's a compendium of interviews and essays about that very subject. Uh, But I want to note it includes interviews with Jake Sullivan and John Feiner, uh, who are currently in uh, the White House and the National Security Council working on exactly uh, the kinds of challenges that Kennan himself did 75 years ago. as well as interviews with Dennis Ross, Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, Richard Haas, uh, and chapters by Ambassador John Teft, Jim Goldgeier, Paul Heer, Jeremy Surrey, uh, our very own Ivan Kurilla, who's with us today, uh, and a great credit to my co-author and co-editor, Michael Kimmage, uh, who made the project possible in every sense. So uh, throughout today's program, please feel free to submit questions, including right now um, via email to kenan at wilsoncenter.org, uh, Twitter at Kennan Institute or on our Facebook page. Um, if you include your name and affiliation, and if the question ends with a question mark, it will make it far more likely that the team will pass it along and I will see it and I will ask it. So please uh, ask questions at any time, but please follow that rubric. So without further ado, I want to introduce a great friend and council member of the Kennan Institute, Grace Kennan Warnicki. Uh, she has had a multifaceted career as an NGO leader, a foundation executive. Uh, small business development expert, uh, writer, and photographer. She's the chair emeritus of the National Committee on American Foreign Policy and presently serves, as I said, as a member of the Kennan Institute's Advisory Council. Uh, she was previously a scholar at the Wilson Center, uh, chaired the National Advisory Council for the Harriman Institute, uh, and served as an associate producer of the prize-winning PBS documentary, The First 50 Years Reflections on U.S.-Soviet Relations. Uh, Her memoir, which I particularly commend to you, it's a great read, was published in 2018 and is titled Daughter of the Cold War. So, Grace, the floor is yours, please.
1: Thank you very much, Matt. I'm very honored to be asked to make introductory remarks before the discussion on the 75th anniversary of George Kennan's famous long telegram, the longest telegram ever sent to the State Department. It contained 5,540 words. It is a special honor to precede this distinguished panel of experts and scholars who will lead the discourse. My father dictated the telegram from a supposed sickbed in our Moscow apartment, but I was an eighth grade boarder at the National Cathedral School for Girls in Washington DC and knew nothing about it. A year later, when a modified version entitled entitled Sources of Soviet Conduct, was published in Foreign Affairs magazine and signed only by X, I was only dimly aware, although the authorship was soon attributed to George Kennan. At Woodrow Wilson High School, foreign policy seemed remote. It was only when I went to Radcliffe College, majoring in Russian history and literature, and a boyfriend started calling me Miss X and I became aware of my father's statue and importance in the world of foreign affairs. Little did I know that it would change my life as well. The, the audacity of a young foreign service officer sending a telegram consisting of his analysis of US-Soviet relations and recommendations for American future policy towards the USSR so soon after the end of World War II was amazing but it also displayed a dichotomy that was always a striking part of my father's personality. He often veered from extreme self-confidence to almost ridiculous self-abasement. Typical was a time when the family was returning from Europe by steamer. Soon after he was forced to resign from the State Department. It was the first time he did not have a diplomatic passport Uh, My mother with the younger children went to the head of the line. Oh, Annalisa, he said, you can't do that. We are no longer diplomats. Don't be silly, George, she answered. The customs people all know us, and I'm not going to stand here and wait with these children. She went to the head of the line, and they soon left the ship and went off to Princeton. I loyally stayed with my father, and three hours later, we went down the gangplank, only to be greeted by a very apologetic customs official. But my father still thought he was right. The telegram which launched my father's career was also a striking example of his ability to write. He followed by writing over 20 books and garnering many prizes and just but I think just as important and particularly important today, he founded and helped launch the Kennan Institute of Advanced Russian Studies. I think this is a great achievement. I'm proud to be a part of it and to introduce this important discussion. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Grace. Uh, what a fitting uh, introduction and uh, such poignant and I think uh, resonant points about your father, uh, not only as a legend of American foreign policy uh, and U.S.-Russia, U.S.-Soviet relations, but as a person, uh, as, as a father, as a family man, um, absolutely fascinating. And I also commend, in addition to Grace's book, for those who are interested, Kennan's own memoirs, I think, are extremely uh, brilliantly, fluidly written, uh, very readable, and uh, just give you a tremendous window uh, into how he thought about himself and, and his own role. Um, all right. With no further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce each of our panelists in turn. Uh, they'll then speak. We'll move through the panel. And let me remind you again, for questions, please email kenan at wilsoncenter.org, tweet to at kennan Institute, uh, or post to our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation, and please end your question with a question mark. Now, I can't think of anyone better to begin this discussion uh, than the incomparable Dr. Angela Stent, who directs the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies series uh, and professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown. She's also a senior fellow at Brookings, a uh, member of the Council on Foreign Relations and co-chairs the Hewitt Forum on Post-Soviet Affairs. Uh, she has previously been a fellow at the Transatlantic Academy of GMF. Uh, she served as national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia on the National Intelligence Council as well as at the Office of Policy Planting- Planning at the State Department. Uh, the office famously founded by George Kennan himself, uh, and was a member of the Senior Advisory Panel for NATO's Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. Uh, Dr. Stent's academic work focuses on the triangular political and economic relationship between and among the United States, Russia, and Europe. So, Angela, with no further ado, the floor is yours.
2: Thank you very much, Matt, for that uh, introduction. I'm delighted to be here. I'm honored to be part of this discussion, and I recall 10 years ago, we did this in person, uh, discussing then the 65th anniversary of the long telegram. Uh, but I have to say, every time I reread it and the Mr. X article, I see new things in it. And as uh, you know, history advances, um, I get new insights. So I'm going to cover two issues today. Uh, the first is the impact of the long telegram on US policy in 1946. Um, and the second is, um, the relevance of the debates, the issues that George Kennan raised for the debates that we have today about Russia. So I think it's very important to understand the context in which Kennan penned the more than 5,000 word longest telegram from Moscow in February, 1946. Despite the Soviet takeover of Eastern Europe, uh, most of Eastern Europe at least by 1946 and the lack of free elections there, which of course Stalin had signed onto at Yalta, there remained a significant residue of goodwill towards the Soviet Union in the United States because of the wartime alliance and the belief that one could still cooperate with Joseph Stalin. Arrayed against those people who favored cooperation with the Soviet Union um, were those whose ideas were closer to Kenan's and who believed that cooperation um, with an increasingly aggressive Soviet Union was impossible. And then thirdly, there were a very strong group of isolationists in the US represented uh, in the the Congress who thought that the US should withdraw from Europe uh, and indeed from all international entanglements uh, now that the war was over. Now, the immediate um, impetus for the long telegram was Stalin's February February the 9th so-called election speech in the Bolshoi Theater. Now, in that speech, Stalin emphasized the Soviet victory in World War II, He said it was a vindication of his system. He downplayed the role of the other allies in winning the war. And then he called for a level of uh, peacetime industrial production uh, that was three times what it had been before the outbreak uh, of the Great Patriotic War. So then when Washington demanded uh, that Kennan explain the meaning of the speech, um, well, and they took this to be largely a belligerent speech, they didn't understand uh, why Stalin had said these things. That's when George Kennan took the opportunity to really spell out in very vivid detail uh, the nature of the Soviet system as he sought uh, and to urge realism about Russia, what, what Russia was really like um, on his colleagues back in Washington. Um, and he wanted to really disabuse the Truman administration of what he considered their naivete um, uh, in terms of their understanding of the Soviet Union. So Kennan started the telegram. I will briefly uh, remind people of what was in that long telegram uh, by emphasizing the Soviet Union's dialectical uh, view of the world. Conflict with the West was inevitable. Stalin made it clear there could be no permanent peaceful coexistence with the capitalists. Uh, And after enumerating the main tenets of Soviet ideology, Kennan argued that the key goal uh, of that ideology was to strengthen the USSR, obviously, and to weaken the West. Uh, Sympathetic Western fellow travelers were, of course, uh, to be cultivated by the Soviet Union. But Kennan was at pains to point out that what Stalin and the party said, and this was always, I think, a very important theme in much of what Kennan wrote. What, um, what they said did not reflect the views of the Russian people. Kennan believed that the Russian people were open to the outside world. They were eager to learn from it. Uh, but they were forced to parrot and internalize the party line. And needless to say, the party line, according to George Kennan, was, of course, based on lies about the nature of the capitalist system. Um, and very importantly, it really had little to do uh, with conditions outside Russia. The ideology really was very much focused on basic inner Russian necessities that had existed for decades, if not more. So, the crux of the telegram, and I am going to uh, quote now, read you one quote from it, uh, was this. Uh, George Kennan wrote At the bottom of the Kremlin's neurotic view of world affairs is traditional and instinctive Russian sense of insecurity. Originally, this was insecurity of a peaceful agricultural people trying to live. Uh, on a vast exposed plain in neighborhood of fierce nomadic peoples. To this was added as Russia came into contact with economically advanced West fear of more competent, more powerful, more highly organized societies in that area. Uh, But this latter type of insecurity was was one which afflicted rather Russian rulers uh, than Russian people, For Russian rulers have invariably sensed that their rule was relatively archaic in form, fragile and artificial in its psychological foundation, unable to stand comparison or contrast with political systems in Western countries. So stressing that the Soviet Union was committed fanatically to the belief that there can be no permanent modus, permanent modus vivendi with the United States, uh, and that the Soviets would do everything they could to destroy American society in order to make Russia more secure, Kennan urged the United States government to recognize the USSR for what it was, to educate the American public about what the Soviet Union was really like, uh, and make it uh, cognizant of these uncomfortable Russian realities. Um, But, and this was his parting word, also very important, he returned to American domestic politics. And he wrote, much depends on the health and vigor of our own society. World communism is like a malignant parasite which feeds only on diseased tissue. So the following year, as has already been mentioned, many of these ideas appeared in public uh, in the Mr. X article. Uh, And there again, George Kennan stressed that the powerful hand of Russian history and tradition reinforced Marxist dialectical view of the world um, and had led to all internal opponents of the regime being labeled as foreign agents. And in recommending that the main element, uh, his famous phrase uh, of US policy toward the Soviet Union should be the long-term, patient, uh, but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies, Cannon also emphasized, and again, this was a theme in all of his writings, uh, that the US dealings with the Soviets should be respectful, calm, and flexible. And of course, shortly after the long telegram was delivered, a matter of a couple of weeks, uh, Winston Churchill, of course, made his famous speech uh, in Fulton, Missouri, describing the descent of the Iron Curtain over Eastern Europe and the threat that Soviet communism posed to Christian civilization. Um, The long telegram did have a profound effect on US decision-makers. For some, it crystallized what they had for some time suspected. Kennan had forcibly repudiated many of the premises under which the Roosevelt administration had dealt with Stalin. Kennan the diplomat had proclaimed the dangers of diplomacy and accommodation in his analysis, and that fell on many receptive ears. The next year, of course, the Truman administration began to implement uh, a policy of containment through the Truman Doctrine, through the Marshall Plan, and um, other policies. Now, of course, the containment policy evolved quite differently than what Kenneth had originally envisaged. Um, and in his 1957 reef lectures, he expressed his criticism of and prescriptions uh, and skepticism about the NATO alliance. He had never intended his containment prescriptions to focus on military containment, uh, rather political and economic containment for what was needed. He criticized the way that the United States was dealing with the Soviet Union He said it was erroneously focused on a non-existent Soviet threat to Western Europe. And as we know, uh, he continued to criticize US policy toward the Soviet Union and Russia, and in particularly toward NATO enlargement until his passing. What relevance do the arguments in the long telegram have to today's debates about how the US uh, should deal with Russia? After all, we're still debating about the nature Uh, of the threat that Russia poses to the United States and how the United States should respond to it. Kenan believed that the Soviet system was a pernicious combination of Tsarist absolutism and expansionism reinforced by marxist Leninist ideology. Biggest difference, of course, today, between now and then is the absence of an official universalist ideology of the ruling communist party. Uh, United Russia is a pale shadow of the CPSU. Uh, but Vladimir Putin has created a new national idea, a hybrid ideology, we could call it, um, but it's not designed to have universal appeal. Uh, rather, the idea of Russian exceptionalism, the Russkiy Mir, the Russian world, Russia as a leader uh, of the conservative international, a bulwark against chaos and regime change, and a protector of traditional values, is designed to appeal to the millions of Russian speakers who live outside Russia uh, in the post-Soviet space or in the West or elsewhere, and also to non-Russian conservatives in the West and beyond, to Euroskeptists, to leftists as well around the world who dislike America and dislike the European Union. Uh, nevertheless, with Putin having declared the liberal world order dead and ridiculing American democracy, especially after the events of January the 6th, Russia is increasingly trying to position itself as a leader with an alternative ideology in uh, what Russia believes will be a post-West world. What has not changed that much since 1946 is the Kremlin's view of the United States as the glavni-prativni, the main enemy. Um, After the Gorbachev and Yeltsin interludes, during which the United States was not uh, seen as an enemy and that was explicit, Putin's Russia has reverted to a traditional Russian dialectical view of the world. Uh, Russians who oppose Putin, as we know, are now labeled as foreign agents um, as they were uh, way back in 1946. Um, How much responsibility does the US bear for the state of affairs? That's obviously a different discussion. Um, Is Russia fated to continue as an authoritarian state that needs a Western enemy to survive? Despite Kennan's understanding uh, that communism had reinforced historical Russian actions and beliefs rather than changing them, he did believe that once communism collapsed, the US would have a chance to develop a new and a better relationship with Russia, hence his criticism of US policy after the Soviet collapse, his opposition to NATO enlargement, and his admonition that the United States should seek to develop a partnership with the new Russia So the questions that he raised in 1946 very much resonate today. And my final point is to reiterate what uh, Kennan wrote at the end of his long telegram, at the end of the Mr. X article. Containment would only work, he argued, if the United States got its own house in order and acted as a model for the rest of the world. And what he wrote at the end of uh, the telegram um, was that uh, the test of Soviet American relations, in essence, a test of the overall worth of the United States as a nation among nations. As we contemplate how to deal with Russia, whether containment as a strategy still makes any sense, and I know my colleagues are going to talk about that, we should acknowledge that particularly with the events of the last six months, it behooves the United States once again to put its own house in order and to rethink its own domestic and international priorities. Thank you.
0: Angela, that was a, a brilliant, fitting introduction to our discussion, and I am so tempted to jump in right there, but in the interest of public service and in deference to my far more qualified and insightful colleagues, I won't. Instead, I will introduce Dr. Yvonne Kurila, who is a professor of history and international relations, director of the Department of Development Partnership Program at the European University in St. Petersburg. He has served as a regional scholar and a short-term scholar at the Kennan Institute so twice, uh, his primary field of interest is the history of U.S.-Russia relations, especially during the American antebellum and civil war periods. a period I would note we often don't think about U.S.-Russia relations, but in which there was a very important relationship with some rather, uh, I think, striking takeaways. Um, Dr. Karilla has organized workshops, published articles, edited volumes on the use of history, historical memory, and historical politics in Russia and the former Soviet space, and is the author of five books, most recently, Frenemies. History of Opinions, Fantasies, Contacts, Mutual Misunderstanding of Russia and the United States. That was in 2018. Ivan, the floor is yours.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for invitation for this uh, very interesting and timely talk. You know, just last week uh, on February 16th, uh, that was an event here in Russia, in Moscow. When the Russian Society for Military History, that's a kind of semi official uh, organization responsible for the historical politics uh, of the Russian state, headed by former Minister of Culture, Vladimir Medinsky. So that uh, organization uh, made a, an event to inaugurate uh, its own library. And the major, the key event, the key uh, uh, you know, acquisition for the opening of this library was an acquisition of the, as they call it, original of the long telegram by Josh Kennan. So i I'm not sure I understand what uh, original of the long telegram means. Probably one of the first uh, printouts of the telegram received in Washington and you know sent for different destinations. So but that was a big uh, deal uh, here in Moscow and uh, people attending this ceremony included uh, Medinsky, who is now advisor to uh, President Putin and uh, also included Dmitry Peskov. And actually, Dmitry Peskov made several uh, remarks, which I will try to retell you, retell you uh, now, that because I, I think this is an interesting development or interesting point of view on the long telegram and on the canon legacy uh, viewed by the Kremlin today. Uh, Dmitry Peskov, you know, you know, press secretary of President Putin and uh, one of the foreign policy. Um, uh, at least he has a foreign policy background, so he, he probably knows what he wanted to, to say. So uh, Dmitry Peskov started with uh, saying that, uh, well, as he, as he uh, told it, I quote, I will say something not uh, everything will like. Kenan was a brilliant diplomat and he loved our country. I mean, Russia. So he said that uh, Kenan loved uh, our country, he loved our people, but he misunderstood Russia, at least in one way. So he proceeded, uh, Peskov proceeded with uh, retelling the uh, main uh, in, uh, main con- uh, ideas of the long telegram. Uh, Peskov even uh, you know, mentioned this uh, feeling of insecurity, uh, saying that we have Russia had an insecurity since the time of next. And then he uh, added that, okay, that was not Kenan who, who wrote about Pechenik, that was President Putin. But still the idea was the same. And uh, so he uh, said that everything that Kenan uh, wrote was right. And he especially mentioned that Kenan later in the 90s uh, opposed the, ex- the proliferation of NATO in Europe. But then he can back got back to the long telegram essence. And he said the big mistake of Mr. Kennan was that he pointed out to the Russian feeling of insecurity, but he did not suggest to face to help Russia to overcome this insecurity. What he suggested is to contain Russia instead of uh, finding the way to give Russia some guarantees, some you know promises, something to, uh, to make uh, Russian uh, government feel more secure. That was uh, the idea that Peskov wanted to emphasize. He returned it several times during his remarks, and that is something which he genuinely looks, uh, you know, interested in, in, in giving this uh, speech uh, on, on the last week. And this is, uh, uh, that makes me uh, think about the contemporary uh, contemporary perception of the long telegram and of canon legacy in Russia. It looked like, uh, first, uh, Russian elite, Russian government, and you know, Peskov as a represent- representative of Kremlin thinking are uh, still very much uh, absorbed, uh, very much concerned about the American attitudes. You know, he uh, came to speak about the long telegram as it is some contemporary uh, document and something which gives uh, Piskov and you know, the um, point to speak about uh, to comment about American policies toward Russia. So American influence, American attitudes are still very important. And uh, you know, it's still uh, Piskov emphasizes everything that that is contained in in the telegram. The second, it looks like Piskov still uh, seen that Canon Telegram defiance American policy uh, towards Russia even today in 2021. It looks like he said that okay uh, everything that Kenan uh, advised uh, to to American government is still in force and what we see now is still a continuation of his uh, uh, you know uh, the pro uh, c- c- continue to use usage of the same uh, piece of advice that canon gave to American presidents, American Department of State, so we can still uh, use the canon telegram as a basis for discussion American policy towards Russia. So that was uh, also important uh, topic and important point for uh, Piskov remarks. So uh, uh, so he said that Kennan uh, actually established some kind of ideas, you know, set of ideas, a framework uh, for American policy towards Soviet Union and for Russia by extension for the contemporary Russia as well. And that it actually uh, it gives me, uh, well, prompt me to, prompted me to think that uh, the Kremlin today uh, would prefer to look into Russian-American relations of the 2021 as something very close to the Soviet-American relations of 1945. This is something, something which gives uh, Kremlin the feeling of greatness, the feeling of uh, you know, much bigger influence that it's actually uh, possesses in the contemporary uh, world. And my question to, well, question not, not, not to my colleagues here, but maybe my question to Peskov if I ever, um, see him uh would be uh, does he really think that uh russia today is the same as the soviet union in 1945 does he also think that the united states in 2021 is the same the united states that was uh in 1944 45 and does he really think that the world is the same as it used to be 76 years ago my answer would be no to all three uh questions. I would say that the Russia is different, uh, the United States is different, uh, and the world is very different. But uh it looks like the contemporary uh, aim or contemporary goal of Russian foreign policy is to reestablish uh, if not the world of 1945, but at least the essence of r- Russian-American relations as it used to be during the Canon, uh, canon Long Telegram, and that is why. Peskov was so attentive to this acquisition of Long Telegram original, and that is why Peskov commented uh, on the Kennan's Long Telegram as it is a contemporary document. And it actually makes the legacy of uh, George Kennan relevant not only as a historical, uh, as as, as a document for historians, but also the document which can help us to understand uh, how Kremlin wants uh, to to see the international politics, wants to see the uh, Russian-American relations of today. Again, for me, uh, this is uh, outdated, and this is uh, just a you know uh, error of uh, uh, establishing the uh, establishing the historical age. But it's something which uh, Piskov wanted to insist. I will probably stop here, and thank you for your attention.
0: Thank you, Yvonne. That's an absolutely fascinating and timely take. I would note that uh, just yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, or the day before, in his uh, speech to uh, the FSB Council, uh, President Putin also reinforced, you know, all of those messages. So it's extremely timely. And I, we have questions pouring in. Still, encourage more of them. Uh, if anybody wants to email, uh, canon at WilsonCenter.org, tweet, or post to Facebook. Um, next. Michael Kimmage, uh, who is a professor of history and chair of the Department of the Catholic University of America. Uh, He chairs the Kennan Institute's Advisory Council and is a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Um, He served from 2014 to 2017 on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. Uh, Michael publishes widely on international affairs, U.S.-Russia relations, and American diplomatic history. Uh, And his latest book, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, uh, was published by Basic Books in April of 2020. Um, Michael was, of course, also my co-author, co-editor, and co-conspirator on the aforementioned Kennan for Our Times volume. Michael, the floor is yours.
4: Thank you so much, Matt, for the kind introduction and for the invitation. And it's wonderful to be collaborating again on uh, a conversation about Kennan's uh, never-ending salience to U.S. policy and U.S.-Russian uh, relations. I, I feel like my presentation picks, off, picks up in a very satisfying way right where uh, Yvonne's left off uh, with the question of how contemporary this document is and how contemporary it should be. Now, the obvious point in reading Kennan's long telegram, I'm thinking of it from Washington's point of view, uh, is to discover insight in it, uh, and it's full of that, Uh, And then to apply this insight to presentations. I don't have any objection to that approach to this. uh, I want, uh, in my remarks this morning, to go in precisely the opposite uh, direction. Uh, And what I wish to do is to identify three incompatibilities between our situation in February of 2021 uh, and the situation that Kenan confronted uh, in February of 1946. I suppose you could say that my thesis statement is. Uh, is in a way utterly obvious that 75 years uh, is a great deal of time uh, and much has changed. But let me try to make that point by um, delving into the text of Kennan's long telegram. Uh, and I'd like to start with the, with the point about stability. Uh, and this concerns Kennan's uh, assessment of the Soviet Union, the sort of opening part uh, of uh, of the document. Uh, and according to Kennan, Stalin uh, and uh, the Soviet foreign policy-making apparatus both predicted and wanted a profound destabilization of the capitalist or the Western world. And so to, to cite chapter and verse, it's section one, premise C, I think we should all for Kenan's organization of this document it makes it very easy to uh, to analyze. Uh, and quoting Kenan, internal conflicts of capitalism inevitably generate wars, intra-capitalist wars and wars of intervention against socialist socialist world. This is of course not Kennan, this is his paraphrase uh, of the Soviet worldview. Uh, And this is followed by deduction B of Kennan's that quote, Soviet efforts must be directed toward deepening and exploiting of differences and conflicts between capitalist powers. If these eventually deepen into an imperialist war, this war must be turned into revolutionary upheavals within the various capitalist countries. I think this is really not the case uh, with Putin today in the way that he sees uh, the world. I think it could well be that Putin's assessment is that the Western world is weaker uh, in various ways in 2021 than it was in 2011 uh, or in 2001 when Putin first came to power. Uh, Certainly, if you follow Russian media, official media, you'll see uh, much evidence for Western decline uh, and decadence. That's uh, part of the narrative. Uh, But in the sort of cold assessments of of Putin uh, and his colleagues, the prospect of wars among Western powers uh, is quite simply non-existent, uh, and it's not something that uh, he either reckons with, uh, and I doubt it would be something uh, he would desire. This, I think, for the simple reason that Russia depends on the world as a market for its oil and gas, uh, and in other respects, in ways that the Soviet Union Never did. And the final point, which I think echoes what Angela was saying about a uh, sort of revolutionary worldview, is that there is no revolutionary uh to which the Putin government aspires, unlike uh, the Soviet Union in the 1940s. Uh, there's no final revolutionary upheaval uh, that will benefit the Russian system uh, in the way that this was assessed to be the case uh, for the Soviet system in the 1940s. Putin famously opposes revolutions. Uh, of any color uh, and has since the Iraq war, I believe, genuinely uh, resented what he considered stabilizing tendencies uh, of American foreign policy. So there are relatively objective difference between uh, our world uh, and the world of 1946. Second point is about decolonization. This is in fact a core concern of Kennan's throughout the long telegram. Uh, And of course, this is perfectly logical for the year uh, 1946, when decolonization was, in many ways, just uh, beginning as a kind of international trend, as an international uh, process. And here again, to cite chapter and verse, part three, section D, quote, toward colonial areas and backward or dependent peoples, Soviet policy, even on official plane, will be directed toward weakening of power and influence in context of advanced Western nations, on theory that insofar as this policy is successful, there will be created a vacuum, which will favor communist Soviet penetration," end quote. I really think that this setup uh, was unique to 1946 and looking beyond Kennan's terms of phrase here, uh, which which are unique to 1946 or so one would hope, uh, colonialism itself is a thing of the past, at least in the uh, the formal sense. Uh, And this means that even if Russia has filled a vacuum of power, a vacuum of Western power in Syria and Libya, and in a few other places, it really does not have the same vacuum to create uh, as decolonization had created for the Soviet Union uh, in, 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 uh, after World War II. There's an enormous difference of scale here. In addition, to make this sort of further point here, when looking at Russia and China together at the moment, the challenge the West faces is not its overextension, and an excess of unwanted involvement uh, as was true in 1946, it is by contrast, a relative lack of involvement uh, in many parts of the world. So here I would point to Central Asia, the South Caucasus, large parts uh, of Asia and also Africa where sort of more trade, more investment, more military ties, more vaccine diplomacy might be desired from the West uh, by individual countries. But in many areas you see the West choosing not to commit itself Uh, very deeply, which frames a problem, uh, not of Western colonialism, but of Western passivity and inaction, and hence a difference between now and then. Third and final point of of difference uh, is, and I think this is the one that's the most arguable, uh, and maybe the sort of least uh, persuasive in a way, uh, but this point concerns the Russian people and Russian government. It's Kennan's claim, Angela has mentioned it already, uh, that there was a wide gulf between the Soviet government uh, and Russian people. So this is part two uh, of the long telegram. uh, And uh, Kennan points here to the party line, which he argues, quote, does not represent the outlook of Russian people. Latter are by and large friendly to outside world, eager for experience of it, eager to measure against the talents they are conscious of possessing. In sum for Kennan, the party line equals the achievements such as they are of a quote unquote propaganda machine. Now, there are many, I think Peter Pomerantsev perhaps most prominently, who would disagree with me on this point, uh, but I do not think that this represents the situation uh, in 2021. Though so It may represent the Russian situation in 2025 uh, or 2030. That's conceivable, I think. The friendliness to the outside world uh, of Russians is borne out anecdotally by the recent World Cup uh, in Russia, uh, but the friendliness Kenan had in mind, here's a slight distinction, was, I think, a friendliness that had grown up from behind the walls Stalin had built uh, around the Soviet Union or between the Soviet Union in the West. This was a friendliness that struck and I think, because there was a fundamental lack of contact uh, between uh, citizens of the Soviet Union uh, and the outside world. And now, of course, borders are substantially more open. The internet brings the world to Russia uh, and Russia to the world in uh, entirely new ways uh, in the 21st century. The key point, though, I think is not about friendliness. Uh, It's that Putin has established a foreign policy that does reflect the outlook, certainly not of all Russian people, uh, but arguably uh, of a majority of Russian people, the critical mass. He must rely more on his propaganda machine at the moment for domestic politics. uh, Though, of course, he relies on it to justify everything he does uh, in his domestic and foreign policy. Uh, Putin presides uh, over a much more Russian state than Stalin himself, not an ethnic Russian, uh, ever did. Uh, And Putin has answered a popular call in Russia, not for hostility with the West, but for geopolitical autonomy from the West. To that degree, Putin can use his propaganda machine to reinforce a message uh, which already exists. Uh, And this is very different, uh, and I would argue much more effective uh, than the propagation of Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism uh, in 1946. And that's my third and final difference. In sum, I will leave the policy implications of these three incompatibilities uh, for the Biden administration to puzzle through. Uh, my intent this morning was simply uh, to point them out. Thank you very much.
0: Wonderful, Michael. Uh, thank you so much. And again, I'm, I'm going to have to uh, restrain myself from jumping in right away because uh, far better to hear now from uh, Tom Graham, who is a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a senior advisor at Kissinger Associates, where he focuses, of course, on Russian and Eurasian affairs. Uh, He co-founded the Russian East European and Eurasian Studies program at Yale University and still sits on its faculty steering committee, is a research fellow at the Macmillan Center at Yale, and teaches a course on US-Russia relations there. Uh, Tom, as many of you will know, was special assistant to the president and senior director for Russia on the National Security Council staff uh, in critical years from 2004 to 2007, uh, during which time he managed the White House Kremlin strategic dialogue and also served as director for Russian affairs on the staff uh, in the two years prior to that. So uh, no one whose perspective on this could be better informed. uh, Tom, the floor is yours.
5: Thank you very much, Matt, for that kind introduction. And it's a real pleasure to be speaking on this panel with my other distinguished colleagues today. Uh, As we've been discussing today, the United States emerged victorious in the Cold War through the application of a containment policy for which George Kennan laid the intellectual foundations in his long telegram. Because of its demonstrated success since the end of the Cold War, American policymakers have been tempted to turn to containment to deal with other adversaries. Today, the United States seeks to contain Iran in the Middle East, seeks to isolate and contain Russia globally, and there is growing discussion of containing China. The question for us, I think, is whether containment can produce the desired result. And to answer that, we need to understand how containment worked during the Cold War. And here, I would suggest, matters are not as straightforward as they are generally presented. Kennan wrote that the main element of U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union had to be long-term, patient, but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. That, he argued, would eventually lead either to the breakup or the mellowing of Soviet power. Now, the question is, to what extent, then, did the United States contain the Soviet Union? I would argue that great success was attained on the Eurasian landmass. The central arena of the Cold War. Washington prevented Moscow from extending its reach in Europe. It exploited the Sino-Soviet split to diminish Soviet influence in East Asia and elsewhere. And Kissinger's adroit diplomacy effectively removed the Soviets as a critical factor in the Middle East. But in what we then called the Third World, Moscow rapidly expanded its presence in the 1970s, coming to the aid of Marxist-Leninist regimes. And by the end of that decade, it was backing Ethiopia in the strategically important Horn of Africa and propping up a leftist regime in resource-rich Angola. More disturbing to Washington, it had a foothold in Nicaragua and was menacing the rest of Central America. Now, the irony to my mind is that it was just this third world activism culminating in the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 that overstretched Soviet resources and eroded Soviet power in the 1980s. In short, it was not so much America's determined application of containment as Moscow's failure to contain itself at a time of mounting internal problems that stressed the system to the breaking point. Now, at least as important in the ending of the Cold War was another policy closely related to, but distinct from containment, that Kennan underscored. We might call this the policy of falsification. It was possible, he wrote, erode the internal foundations of Soviet power by creating the impression that the United States knew what it wanted, was coping successfully with the problems of its internal life, and with the responsibilities of world power, and had a spiritual vitality capable of holding its own among the major ideological currents at the time. If the United States could do that, he argued, Soviet aims would appear sterile and quixotic, enthusiasm among Soviet supporters would wane, and Soviet foreign policy would be further strained. And this, I think, he was right on the mark. By the 1970s, it was already evident that Marxism-Leninism could not live up to its promises. Washington could not, however, exploit the resulting discontent at that time because it has hardly appeared to be coping successfully with its own multiplying domestic ills: civil discord, Watergate, stagflation, the situation changed dramatically, however, under President Reagan as he revived the American spirit and Soviet dysfunction deepened. And to an astonishing degree, Soviet leader Gorbachev himself sought to inculcate Western values and practices in the Soviet Union. And the Cold War ended because the Soviet Union failed to produce the goods, fact underscored by the growing vitality of the United States. Now, we succeeded in. I think the question is what conditions enabled this success? Two very brief points. First, the Cold War was essentially a bipolar contest. The leading industrial powers in Europe and East Asia were presented with an either or choice either American hegemony or Soviet domination. And the choice was quite simple for countries that had seen the devastating consequences of Soviet domination. That recognition was the essential glue that held the American alliance system together throughout the Cold War. Second, the two superpowers were restrained in their ambitions. Each sought to avoid a direct, decisive military conflict with the other. Initially, restraint was a consequence of exhaustion after the ordeal of the Second World War, but rapidly the development of nuclear arsenals and intercontinental ballistic missiles produced the mutually assured destruction that counseled caution. Restraint was further reinforced, as Kennan pointed out, by the Soviets' belief in the inevitable victory of socialism, something that allowed them to retreat unfazed in the face of overwhelming force. And as a result, the Cold War became a prolonged war of political, economic, and ideological maneuver that favored the more productive and innovative side now neither of these conditions obtains today and that raises in my mind grave doubts about the efficacy of any policy of containment especially with regard to russia or china to begin with the world is no longer bipolar it is multipolar america cannot contain russia or china when other major countries are willing or unwilling to follow the american lead and for these countries the alternatives to american hegemony or leadership As the Biden administration would have it, are not all obviously worse. China's centrality to the global economy makes countries reluctant to falling behind Americans' efforts to constrain China's economic advance. Witness the EU's conclusion of an investment deal with China almost on the eve of President Biden's inauguration. Similarly, American efforts to frame the global challenge as a bipolar one pitting democracies against authoritarian states will be resisted by countries that are jealous of their strategic economy and have ways of preserving it by building ties with other middle-level powers. Just look at French President Emmanuel Macron's remarks at the Munich uh, Security Conference last week. Now, second, the foundations of restraints are eroding today. While the existence of nuclear weapons may still give countries pause, the growing prominence of cyberspace and cyber weapons and the relative ease of deploying and developing them encourage greater risk taking, especially by powers that are less dependent on the cyber realm than the United States is. As recent revelations about the Russian hack indicate, direct conflict between major powers is hardly a thinkable, at least in cyberspace. In short, the conditions for the successful application of a policy containment are absent today. Nevertheless, one element of success in the Cold War to which Kenan repeatedly returned, return remains critical and here I want to reinforce what Angela said at the end of her remarks. The United States needs to deal with its domestic problems. It needs to know what it wants. It needs to demonstrate that it's coping effectively with its domestic problems and the responsibility of a world power. And it needs to exude a spiritual vitality capable of holding its own among the ideological currents of the present world. Now, as we all know, that hardly describes the United States today, but it is just those qualities that are ultimately the foundation of American success in the world. And that conviction, to my mind, is a central legacy legacy of Kennan's work. Let me stop there.
0: Tom, that was wonderful. Um, Thank you all so much. This this has just been a a perfect primer, uh, but we have much to discuss as well. A lot of questions have come in. Uh, If anybody has any others, I I think we'll still have room to get them in. Email Kenan at wilsoncenter.org. So um, let me just start with an observation. And this is run through, uh, I think, almost all of your remarks. And that is, read the text. You know, read the text. Kenan is very clear-eyed about the nature of the Soviet Union. Lots of very helpful, um, in some cases, maybe overly essentialist. But nonetheless, very piercing analyses of uh, of, of sort of historic Russia, of the nature of the Soviet system, its dialectical obsession. Uh, and yet, uh, and Angela made this point and Tom has made this point, you come to the end and there are five policy recommendations. They're numbered. Uh, it's a telegram. You know, they're basically bullet points, if you will, in the modern policy memo format. Two of them are about investing and in understanding the Soviet adversary, spending the money necessary, having government do it, and doing it objectively. That's one and two. Three through five, you know, while we're searching for the term containment or looking for references to, you know, military uh, deployments and reassurance and countering Soviets and counterforces, none of that is there. Uh, recommendations three through five are all about what Tom concluded on, what Angela mentioned, which is getting the American house in order, being crystal clear about who we are, what we stand for, uh, doing it well, not being hypocritical, leading by example, uh, and, and all of these sort of good good housekeeping practices, if you will, of, of, uh, of policy. Um, to me, that is an incredibly striking takeaway. If you read nothing else in Kennan's lifelong body of work, which is vast, and I'm gonna to come to a question about that in just a moment, um, you know, read this one document and reflect on why he chose. Uh, you know, not that the man, uh, you know, had necessarily perfect foresight, but why did he choose to commemorate these five points as his actual policy recommendation takeaways? I think that's extremely important. Um, but a far better uh, put question and a far more distinguished asker than I uh, offers itself up, and this is from Avis Ambassador Avis Bolin. Uh, daughter, if I'm not mistaken, of Ambassador Chip Bolin, who was Kennan's colleague and Kennan's successor, in fact, in the embassy in Moscow. And so she asks the following, and I want to open this to kind of brief comments from the panel because there are many other questions as well. She says, I wonder if you could elaborate a bit more on Kennan's later views of the long telegram. He not only disowned what successive U.S. administrations made of it and the theory of containment, but also the telegram itself. Uh, he at some point, here or she paraphrases, more or less dismissed it as the ramblings of youth, and in particular rethought what he felt was an overly rigid and mechanistic view of how the Soviet Union acted, and very much at odds with his later views, and indeed arguably with his general approach. In a sense, uh, it the long telegram had more in common with Paul Nitz's description of the Soviet Union in NSC 68 uh, and uh, than, than with Kennan's own uh, more nuanced view and a similar question uh, from Vlad uh, Lehovich, uh who uh, essentially asked that uh, you know Kennan said in later years he had been misinterpreted, and the Western policy of containment as it as it evolved was not what he had proposed in the X article uh, or in the Long Telegram. So I open that to the floor for comment, and and we'll move on. There are a number of other questions about history as well. Michael, please. Just briefly, I
4: think. Part of the evidence for the answers to the question came from uh, Angela's citation from the sources of Soviet conduct and this notion of respectful, calm and pleasant dealings with the Soviet Union, because in the long telegram, he basically says impl- diplomacy is impossible. We're not going to be able to sit down with these people. It's, it's unmanageable. And that's already a contradiction in Kennan's thinking in 46, 47. And I think he unravels that later uh, by coming down more on the side of diplomacy. Uh, and at least working the margins of diplomacy than the more categorical position he takes in the long telegram.
2: Angela, please. I mean, just briefly, just to reiterate um, George Kennan loved Russia. He loved the Russian language, the culture, the people. He had a lot of respect for them. And I think, um, and you know, that does come out um, in the long telegram, uh, certainly. Um, and I think, yes, he believed that his. Containment uh, prescription had been misinterpreted. He was clear, right? As I said in the in these wreath lectures in 1957 that he gave at the University of Oxford, he goes into that in great detail um, about he didn't that he did not mean a kind of global military containment. And then I would say the other thing was he was really disappointed after the Soviet collapse because he believed that the United States should have had a much more forward-leaning policy. Um, and it, it should have done everything it could to, if you like, engage a uh, post-Soviet Russia and instead, you know, as we, we know what happened. So um, I think that's true. And, and, you know, as we all know, he was very critical of other aspects of American policy as he got older, uh, but he did feel that he'd been uh, misinterpreted or that people had reacted overly hysterically to what he'd said in 1946.
0: You know, Angela, I would I would point out. Uh, thank you for bringing in the Reith Lectures. You can actually listen to. I, I think not quite all of them, but many of them have been recorded. They're wonderful to listen to in his own voice. And there's one, if I'm not mistaken, that you know very precisely illustrates this point. It's where he talks about the German problem of the day in the 1950s, and he comes out very clearly as an opponent of a militarized NATO Germany, uh, which would seem sacrilege in retrospect to to many. Uh, Russia hands and Cold Warriors, um, but his argument is actually quite rational, which is, you know, he says, uh, if you want a unified Germany, you can't have that uh, and a Germany, which is a potential military threat to the Soviet Union, simply because the Soviets will react in unacceptable ways. So you're forced with this zero-sum choice, and he comes down in favor of sort of better to, to have a non-militarized Germany, but one that is united. Um you know, that to me seems the essence. That's that's actually your your description of his ideas in application in a real world policy problem more than a decade later. Um, let me bring in another couple of historical questions if I can. Um, Yvonne, you might wanna tackle this one. Dostor, Dr. Kristina uh, Minkova at St. Petersburg State University uh, says that the long telegram is of course not the only document uh, of this length and character written by Kennan. Uh, one could recall Russia seven years later or his summer 1945 memorandum. Uh, which contained basically the same ideas. Why did the long telegram end up becoming such a renowned document over Kennan's other writing? And there's a kind of corollary question, which you may know as an archival historian, Yvonne, um, and that is, was the telegram in fact directed uh, through the War Department rather than the State Department? I mean, who, who was the intended audience for this from Kennan's perspective? Is that, is that clearly known? You have to unmute Ivan.
3: Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, well, first question, why why long telegram? Well, I, I think it's, uh, first of all, uh, this is a significance of the document, which was, uh, you know, get right in time uh, for recipients. I mean, write it in time at the, at the moment when uh, that was a, you know, uh, Vacuum of ideas, that the shortage of ideas about what uh, what to do and where to move, and that was uh, exactly at that time when long telegram appeared, and it was a kind of a response. So, Canon. Uh, Offered it suggested that ideas which can fill the vacuum and that is why it became so important okay since that time many people tried to and you know we' very sophisticated in, in writing about American attitudes about the world <laughs> composition of the world affairs but well everything which was a bit late for the moment uh, while the long telegram was exactly at the moment and that is why I think it's it is more important than well, it is still uh, produces more uh, impact than um, many other writings, uh, even of, of Kenan and of, of other diplomats and other scholars. I actually have uh, no idea was it attend- intended to the war department or to state department. I guess it looks like it was intended for like a whole Washington establishment for the whole foreign policy uh, people in, in Washington who dealt with Russia, who needed who, to find ways. I'm not sure I know what uh, was it, you know, the recipient, the exact recipient on the other hand, but on the other side. But uh, as far as I know, it was uh, resent immediately for a number of addresses in Washington. So it was received in War Department as well as in the State Department and in uh, well intelligence services. So it was uh, uh distributed in, in, in washington among those exactly those those people who can uh, probably uh, sort as a recipients those who were on decision making positions uh, towards russia and towards uh, future of american foreign policy thanks
0: thanks i want to i want to bring uh, tom in as well on on the history questions but but others comment please uh, dr joshua rubenstein uh, at the davis center uh, at Harvard asks, uh, what was the impact of Eisenhower and Foster Dulles' repudiation of containment in favor of rollback of communism? So here we take, you know, kind of the the, the misconception of containment as being military in nature, and then we go one step further to say, uh, in fact, what we want to do is rollback. And it's interesting to me, Tom, you know, you, you cited Reagan Uh, as providing the kind of moral reinforcement that the United States needed later in the Cold War. But Reagan, arguably, would have been a a proponent of rollback. I mean, his his message, right? Uh, We win, they lose. Um, That was his Cold War strategy. So uh, Tom, your thoughts on on kind of the lingering impact of that maybe three-part divide and and the debate over that? Uh, You got to unmute. Uh, you know the way we
5: applied uh, containment over the, the course of the Cold War changed radically from administration uh, to administration. Uh, you know uh, we tend to refer to it all as containment in uh, in retrospect. You know as we've already pointed out, uh, you know Kennan himself uh, repudiated at least the way uh, containment evolved over over many years. And in fact, if you go back and read his uh, memoirs. He would suggest that uh, the policy of containment that he had proposed in uh, in 1946 or 1947 had pretty much run its course uh, by the, the middle of the 1950s with the death of Stalin, uh, the the beginnings then of uh, some tension between the, the, the uh, communist China and, and the Soviet Union. Uh, and that called for a different type of diplomacy on the part of the United States. Um, you know, uh, Eisenhower and Dulles uh, clearly roll back, uh, although uh, I think if you look at the history of it, there's very little that they did uh, in a practical way uh, to actually uh, try to undermine or roll back of uh, the Soviet presence in uh, in Eastern Europe or elsewhere in the world at that time. Again, recognizing uh, the, the real threats of a, a direct confrontation with the Soviet Union at that time. Uh, you know, Reagan is somewhat different uh, I think, you know, clearly there is a um, Reagan talks about rolling back, um, rolling back uh, the Soviet Union, but the context is much different at that time because you had a, a much different Soviet Union uh, by the early 1980s. I think the important factor here as well uh, is the, the emergence of Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, who uh, in many ways wanted to move in a direction that was compatible. Uh, with, what, uh, with, uh, with Reagan's own thinking of, uh, on that, uh, perhaps moved a bit more rapidly in that direction because of the, the pressure that he got from Reagan, uh, but almost from the time that he emerged in 1985, uh, he was moving in that way. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, containment uh, did vary over time. Uh, you know, as I argued, I don't think that in fact, it was containment per se that brought down the Soviet Union. Uh, I think it was more uh, the internal difficulties in, uh, in the Soviet Union brought on by this overstretch in, in the third world uh, that created the, the conditions uh, that led to Gorbachev's
0: reforms and the ultimate demise of Marxism-Leninism in the Soviet Union. Um, if I can, I just want to bring Grace in. Grace, can you hear me? Um, so my, my question is, you know, your father. Quite famously, and I think some have uh you know, riffed on this in in biographical writing about him, including Gaddis. He was, he was sort of brilliant uh at the writing part. Um, in fact, was described, you know, as the 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 problem with George, said one of his contemporaries, is that he writes so brilliantly, he can convince you of anything, um, but maybe not so brilliant at the at the politics, this the sort of Washington self-promotion game and so on. And as a result, ends up being, you know, kind of frozen out of the official halls of power um, for the the bulk of his latter career and and you know as a very prominent voice at princeton and so on what what if any difference do you think it made that he was for so much of those later years sitting outside of washington as distinct from someone you know who had a kind of full lifetime career in washington did you do you have any sense of that being around him uh, you need to unmute
4: grace sorry
1: Here we go, can you hear me now? Yes, I think it always changes if you're in Washington and you're not in Washington. And my father was also a very complex man. He was brilliant, as we all know. And but on the other hand, he could be very emotional. He was, um, he had his own views which were not, which he believed in very strongly and were not always in sync with the views of, of people in power. And I think that, that caused a certain amount of trouble for him. I also um, I've been fascinated listening to all of this. I, I'm curious about one thing that has not come up at all, which is the, the protests against Navalny, which seemed to me have shown a a difference in what's going on, and in Putin's um, the fact that these very strong protests have been happening, seems to me makes another change in um, U.S. U.S. Russian relations. And I was just curious that it hadn't come up.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot, Grace. It's actually a good pivot to talking. Uh, you know, a couple of uh, bigger areas that I want to get to. Uh, including kind of the Cold War analogy to China today. Tom spoke briefly about that, but we have we have questions about that, and also about you know U.S. policy today. Um, so, if you don't mind, let me just table that question uh, for a moment, Grace. But we will come back to it um, if I can. I want to ask a question uh, from Ishan Tharoor from the Washington Post. Um, we also got questions from Michael Dobbs, a former Kennan scholar and author, and Paul Here at the Center for National Interest, uh, all very similar, basically. Uh, asking, uh, you're making reference to uh, this uh, so-called longer telegram, uh, quite a bit longer, is a treatise that's been circulating uh, about the current U.S.-China showdown, um, and and basically, what lessons the panel thinks might be learned from the legacy and impact of the ideas in the long telegram, uh, if applied, uh, perhaps not in exactly the way recommended in the longer telegram, but if applied, uh, in your view. Uh, to the to the China challenge today, and again, Tom, I, I think you you started with that a little bit, but I'd invite anyone who wants to to comment on that set of questions. Michael, please go ahead.
4: This is uh, sort of a a methodological answer to that question. Um, you know, I, I would reiterate what Tom said earlier about uh, the difficulties of applying containment per se. To the international situation now, but if we're to learn from Kennan, I think it's really the first third of the document uh, that's so crucial. The very precision with which he's able to lay out Soviet points of view—I'm sure he got things wrong—and there and in there inaccuracies or overstatements. Uh, Use the term essentialism at, and uh, uh, no doubt he's guilty of all those things. But given the difficulty of the enterprise, uh, you know, he succeeded relatively well in characterizing a regime that was extremely difficult. Uh, to characterize. And it seems to me like with US-China policy, it has to rest on a similarly precise, you know, sort of careful, nuanced reading uh, of Chinese civilization, uh, Chinese security concerns, Chinese political culture, uh, and um, if I can editorialize for a moment, it doesn't seem like in Washington we're uh, all that close to, to, to getting there. So I think we can learn from Canada in that regard. Uh,
0: Angela, please, and then Tom.
2: This is obviously a vast subject. Um, But, you know, as Tom said, the nature of containment changed over the time, containment of the Soviet Union. And even in the 1950s, even with Eisenhower, you know, Radio Free Europe may have supported the Hungarians as they rose up against communist power, but the US government didn't. So there was a recognition right from the beginning uh, that the, the Soviet Union had a sphere of influence we had a sphere of influence and no one interfered with it. So A, I question whether today, as people in the US formulate what to do about China, are they gonna accept that China has a sphere of influence, uh, uh, that it has a right to do what it does in the South China Sea? I would, so I would, that whole aspect of what happened to containment policies, I would question. And then the other, of course, huge differences, the Soviet Union was a marginal, economic player internationally in 1946. It was never you know, uh, an economic challenge uh, to the United States. It was marginal. China, as we know, um, is, is the major international economic player. And how you contain that, uh, given you know, a globalized world, um, I don't know. But I think that the situation is very different, obviously, than what the kinds of policies had, that had to be formulated 75 years ago.
0: By the way, I think, Angela, there's a resonance in your your reference to 1956, Hungary and and the U.S. not, in fact, putting its uh, sort of principles uh, first in in answer to Grace's question about protests in Russia today, but we'll come to that. Tom, please.
5: Just to reinforce what Angela said, I mean, the nature of the Chinese challenge is radically different from the one that we faced from the Soviet Union uh, in 1946 and throughout much of of the Cold War. Uh, the Soviet challenge was largely in the security field and in the sphere of ideology. Uh, as Angela has, has mentioned, it was a marginal uh, economic player. But uh, you know, even more important than that, uh, it was uh, it was no sort of economic partner with the United States. If you look at China, uh, uh, it is a central player in the global economy. But there's a a massive amount of interdependence between both the United States and China, uh, and so. Uh, how you what containment means uh, in uh, in that situation? How you disentangle uh, the American economy and the Chinese economy are big questions. Let alone how you would contain China economically across the globe. Now you add to that a security challenge. You add to that a, an ideological challenge, uh, and you have with China a type of uh, strategic challenge that the United States has never faced before. Uh, in its history, a peer uh, competitor uh, that can compete with the United States across almost all the dimensions of power uh, in, in, in the contemporary world um, and in a globalized world. So we need something different uh, from containment uh, if, we're going to, if we're going to manage this going forward.
0: So actually, a really nice follow-up to that and a good pivot to contemporary U.S.-Russia policy and U.S. policy more broadly. Uh, is a question from John Harper, an emeritus professor of American foreign policy. He notes uh, two things. One, uh, that uh, Kennan, in characterizing the Soviets, uh, was really mostly distinguishing them from the Nazis, which would have been a very familiar and recent example to his audience, in that the Soviets were playing a, a long political game, whereas the Nazis were a sort of immediate military threat. The dominant view though ended up being to take the USSR as an immediate military threat, and of course today you know, the contemporary tendency to analogize to 1939 uh, or 1945, I and mean, it's, it's, it's rife in our talking and, and thinking about Putin and Russia. Um, and also uh, that, you know, Kennan emphasized uh, in, in the language that a, a couple of people have quoted, the need to solve internal problems uh, being a diplomatic victory worth a thousand notes, etc. cetera. Um, the question uh, that, that John Harper poses is why did those very clear messages so easily get lost at that time. And I would add to that question, why are they so hard to internalize in the debate today? Radio silence, there we go, Michael.
4: I'll take a crack at it, but it, it, here my mind turns to some of Kennan's other writings on the long telegram, um, the lectures he gave at the University of Chicago and. Um, you know, some follow-on writings after his, his his time as director of policy planning. I think one of Kennan's really cogent points, thinking back to the Second World War and what should not be learned from the Second World War and not be imitated from the Second World War, was Kennan's uh, extreme skepticism about unconditional surrender uh, as a foreign policy uh, goal. But maybe that's implicit already in the long telegram, because that's not what, he, what he's urging uh, on the United States. I mean, the sort of policy brilliance, maybe this speaks to the question of why the document resonated uh, so much in 1946. The policy brilliance of Kennan was to restrain those uh, in one direction uh, who were uh, naive about the Soviet Union uh, and inclining toward uh, passivity, but then to restrain those in the other direction who were gonna take rollback back to its logical extreme and and sort of begin uh, World War III. And so I think he was trying to divest American foreign policy of that uh, goal uh, but the difficulty of doing it, Matt, uh, is that unconditional surrender is a very elegant goal. If there's a real clarity, you sort of know when you achieve it uh, and it provides purpose and it provides uh, structure to a far foreign policy. So one of the innate difficulties of containment is that it doesn't really have uh, a very precise end state. And you have to live with that if you embrace containment and that's, that's quite hard to do. Such
0: a wonderful point and so relevant for today's Washington political debates. Um, any, anyone else on that point? Otherwise I'll, I'll take another question. So um, this, one, this one I think is very compelling, uh, particularly at this moment, particularly uh, as we are in February, uh, Black History Month, uh, the Kennan Institute has been doing uh, a number of programs uh, looking at, you know, for, for, from the US perspective, the issue of diversity in our field, the same argument could be made about diversity within government uh, in, in the foreign policymaking uh, world. Um, And so the question from uh, uh, associate professor at Pennsylvania State University, Errol Henderson, is, given Kennan's exceptional insights, the Soviet Union would eventually implode, and almost foreseeing the future, uh, demonstrating his incisiveness about Soviet society, uh, how do you reconcile that with his, at best, myopic and racist, uh, at worst, uh, view of his own society, uh, did his white supremacism influence U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War? And finally, what did uh, why did Kennan argue against the inclusion of a declaration of human rights in the U.N. Charter? I think uh, Professor Henderson is assuming some additional knowledge that there, there is a lot in his diaries uh, recently published that's you know, certainly not admirable on those fronts. Uh, and, and then obviously uh, the debate about the U.N. Charter uh as well which we haven't talked about but uh you know Ivan you've studied the history uh, any any thoughts uh i know you're you're also the one non-american on the panel so that's
3: <laughs> easier for me to be uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah i, I guess you, you you asked me yeah uh well this is something which is very this is very hot topic for americans i know and i i follow what uh, what is going on in the reevaluation of the uh people from the past, uh, you know, given their misogynist or racist uh, points of view, and uh, let me be a little bit more conservative here because we actually uh, discuss uh, mostly, uh, okay, something that those people gave us, uh, how those people improved uh, the society and not the other part of their personalities. Sometimes the personalities were really, really ugly, sometimes they were, you know uh, Just misunderstood, but I would not say that uh, we should, uh, you know, make a pick point to just just uh, one features of the character from the history and uh, forget forget about others. Of course, uh, these parts of the canon personality should be they are already in, in the light, and we should uh, judge him and his uh, his biography, uh, you know, with with all knowledge. Uh, about that, about this epoch, about his uh, relevance to his generation, uh, this, you know, dominant uh, views of his generation. But I would say that we discussed long telegram, and this is something which is still relevant for us, and this is something which survives his long life, Uh, and not the other side, which is not surviving this generational um, errors and generational mistakes, which were probably uh, you know, all of us know. Uh, are you know, our society is now better. I would say much better than the society in which uh, Josh Kennan lived most of his life, and this is some something which we should keep in mind.
0: Michael, please.
4: I think that diplomats are often told to have empathy. To be a good diplomat, you have to have empathy, and I think Kennan, as a diplomat, really excelled in that respect. I mean, he really immersed himself in Russian literature, uh, um, almost going to an extreme. And maybe that goes back to what Grace was saying earlier about a certain extremism in his uh, in his character. I think there's a quote of Kennan's that he said, I would rather live in Siberia uh, among Russians than on Park Avenue among certain kinds of, uh, of Americans, which is a, a striking observation. But what impresses me about Kennan, not in the positive sense of the word to be impressed, is his lack of empathy when he writes about Uh, the U.S. There's a harshness to it. It's not just on issues of race and ethnicity and diversity. There's sort of a harshness about it, Richard pipes recalls meeting with Kennan in the 1970s and Kennan sort of complaining about uh, the city of Washington and and, and conditions and and pipes was put off by that. Uh, And there's just a sort of lack of empathy there, whether that's because he was a citizen, whether he grew up in a certain way, I, I wouldn't pretend to be able to psychoanalyze him in that respect, but it's a very important point because it does translate in this foreign policy thinking to a a sort of structural lack of interest in Latin America, uh, a lack of interest in Africa, a lack of interest in the Middle East, a tendency to see these things constantly through the sort of great game of power politics uh, in Europe. And that's a, a debit of Kennan's uh, to be sure. Very finally on the question of the uh, of the human rights charter, I think it's it's um, uh, very much in tune with Kennan's critique of what he called moralism, legalism in American foreign policy the sort of the negative parts of the Wilsonian heritage as he understood it. And he just, you know, was sort of more of a realist and, and wanted to see diplomacy go in a different direction. And was that, 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 that was sort of largely anathema to him, that way of looking at the world.
0: Yeah, that's certainly the the phenomenon of blind spots uh, in, in many of the historical figures who kind of write the story of American foreign policy is um, hugely important. And you mentioned Wilson. Uh, couldn't be a better example, right? You had a huge blind spot when it came to segregation and the so-called lost cause in the South and so forth, and yet was a visionary uh, in, in international relations. Um, let me take, if I can, our very last 10 minutes uh, and ask a question from uh, Valeria Jagisman, uh, a Voice of America journalist, uh, who asks whether the panel participants could outline their main policy recommendations for the Biden administration towards Russia today and uh, the lessons for U.S. policy today from the telegram, and here I think we can bring in uh, Grace's very important question about how do we respond today to what's happening in Russia domestically, including the the recent protests. So why don't we give you know each panelist sort of two minutes to close out with thoughts on on this? Angela, you seem, uh, uh, just go ahead and unmute.
2: Sure. Okay. <laughs> so I, I would start off with I think the obvious point that. You know, the relationship is the worst that it's been since at any time uh, since certainly before Mikhail Gorbachev came to power. Um, What needs to be done immediately is to identify those areas where we have really pressing interests in common with Russia um, and where we need to act on these for our own national interests. And I think the first is already we've seen has already happened. And that's arms control. It's the uh, extension of the new START treaty. Um, I think there are going to be more negotiations on uh, different aspects of arms control um, and included in that complex of things like cyber. How do we, you know, we know that sanctions are coming, but how do we talk to Russia um, about what happened last year with the solar hacks? Uh, the Russians obviously would like to have, or have said on numerous occasions they want an agreement with the U.S. about rules of the road for cyber, I don't know whether that's possible, but at least these are things that are of of importance to us, significant importance, and where we do have to to work with Russia. Um, Then, you know, there are a number of other issues um, which, uh, you know, where we probably will work with Russia. I don't know how um, much we can achieve there, and they're both bilateral and multilateral. You have the whole complex of issues that are related to climate change. We both now have uh, invoice, special envoys for Climate se- Secretary Kerry, Mr. Chu Bice, uh, uh, and related to that are issues in the Arctic, so there are a complex of issues there where we where we can and probably will uh, work together. Uh, global Health, now that the U.S. has uh, rejoined the World Health Organization, so a number of other, uh, and, and of course we have competing vaccines, we know that, but there are ways in which there might be at least Um, uh, in a multilateral and maybe a bilateral setting uh, working together. Everything else gets much more complicated. We, of course, have a huge, massive sanctions regime already, so the kind of economic dimension of the relationship isn't going to go anywhere unless something changes. I don't think the Russians expect sanctions to be lifted, and they may get more sanctions, and that is, um, you know, what we've heard from the Biden administration, although they're all also saying that they're going to reevaluate the efficacy of sanctions. But I think you know, this, uh, th- this could get um, uh, much worse. And to come back to um, Grace's question, um, you know, this is an administration that has said it's committed, unlike its predecessor, to the promotion of human rights and democracy around the world. Um, uh, it, it's condemned uh, the imprisonment of, of Navalny um, it, ha- the, it has said that sanctions are coming. We're not sure what those sanctions will be. Uh, but I think it also shows the limits of what the US can do to affect what is happening inside Russia. And I think uh, any policy going forward has, has to be aware of those limits uh, and not try, not say it's going to accomplish something which it can't accomplish.
0: Thanks, Angela. If I could just ask uh, each of the three of you for for one minute because uh, we're really running out of time
3: and we'll go Yvonne, uh, Michael and Tom just as we did in the opening please. Yeah, thank you. I cannot uh, make advice to to Mr. Biden administration. You know, it's a criminal uh, criminalized recently to give advice to foreign foreign governments in Russia. So I will just uh, express my opinion, and this is uh, something connected to the long telegram to Kennan legacy. You know, 75 years ago, the Russian American relations were, were exclusively state to state relations. You know, the Soviet Union was closed society. There was nothing like internet or or travels from Russia, uh, from the Soviet Union abroad. And this is a big difference with the contemporary societies. And what I would say, uh, when uh, the United States uh, elaborate uh, or speaks even about the American uh, policies uh, towards Russia, you should distinguish even in the language, it's important because we follow and people in Russia do watch uh, American debates about Russia to distinguish between Kremlin and the society, between people and the state. And you know that just recently the new bill was reintroduced in the Congress with, you know, with the title holding Russia accountable for. And this is, you know, the use Russia. Can you change or can you advise somebody to change Russia to Kremlin, and that will produce much better better uh, perception here in Russia because otherwise it's very easy for Russian propagandists to say that America is against Russia, against us, and this is uh, much easier for Russian propagandists to make uh, this false uh, equivalence between uh, Russian Russian state and American attitudes to Russian state and the Russian society as a whole. This is my only advice now, thanks. Michael,
4: please. Three quick points, one of them new and two of them old. I think what's not in the long telegram is a, a notion of the transatlantic relationship. That's obvious in 1946, it was uh, not yet there. And I think that that's a key instrument that the Biden administration has and uh, and, and, and should use in dealing with Russia. And uh, I think we'll pay dividends. Secondly, the point about educating the American public in 1946, I think it's more urgent uh, in 2021. There's more ignorance, there's in a way more hysteria, there's more distortion and caricature. And, and Kennan says that that really should be the US government doing it. Uh, should be involved in that work of, of political pedagogy and that's uh, a noble goal. Uh, and then finally, the no, sort of Navalny point, I don't think Kennan uses the word democracy in his concluding sort of portatory uh, It's about de- resilience uh, and sort of setting an example. Uh, and in that sense, uh, you know, the sort of more messianic applications of democracy to other countries, I think the US should avoid channeling Kennan, but the resilience and setting an example, the power of our example, uh, as Biden put it in his inaugural address, uh, is, is the way to go, and I think Kenan uh, is helpful there. Tom, take us home.
5: Uh, very quickly. I mean, First, we need to engage uh, diplomatically across the, the whole front uh, of US-Russian uh, issues. Uh, we have a responsibility to, to reduce the, the risk of a nuclear uh, catastrophe That start, and uh, all the arms control and strategic stability talks that are associated with that, including cyberspace. I think we have the responsibility to, to try to manage what is a competitive relationship responsibly, uh, and that requires engagement with Russia. And then we need to hold open the opportunity for cooperation on these transnational issues, pandemic diseases, global uh, uh, climate change, uh, and, and, and so forth. Uh, I would reiterate uh, what um, Michael has said about the, uh, the domestic issues, I think the first uh, guideline for the United States here should be do no harm. And however we approach the Navalny uh, issue, we ought to do it in a way that doesn't narrow the space uh, for the types of internal developments in Russia uh, that we would like to see. Uh, and we need, of course, to put our own house in order if we're going to uh, have the power of example. We actually have to have an example that the rest of the world wants to emulate, and that certainly doesn't uh, describe our situation right now. So that I think to come back. The central legacy of Kenan from my standpoint is really put your own house in order, uh, demonstrate that the United States knows what it wants to do and can do it, concessively cope with the problems of the modern world, and that's the best message that we can send to the rest of the world and will have the greatest impact.
0: That is truly timeless advice. Tom, Yvonne, Michael, Angela, and Grace, I cannot thank you enough uh, for joining us today for this wonderful conversation. And it's so disappointing not to be able to end an event with an appropriate round of applause here in this virtual world. So instead, I will offer a toast that I hope, Grace, your father, would have appreciated. I know we all do. Keep
4: calm and study Russia. And we'll see you again next time here at the Kennan Institute. Bye-bye.